Welcome to The Signal. I'm Nathan Horn. And I'm Antonia Whalen. We're students in the audio workshop at the University of King's College School of Journalism. Today on the show, hacked. Cyber criminals target a maritime city with a ransomware virus. The only way to get your files back or unlock them or decrypt them is to get the secret key from the hacker. We'll find out what Halifax is doing to protect itself from hackers. And professional lacrosse players in Halifax work towards more inclusion and diversity in the game. This tool could be, you know, such a positive thing in some of these marginalized communities. We'll hear about the plan that includes free lacrosse workshops for kids. Plus later, a Dartmouth woman gets international recognition for founding a grassroots school. Anyone can be a teacher. Anyone who has learned a skill like cooking or carpentry or basic electrical. Meet the woman who's putting learning in people's living rooms. All that and more on today's show. If you're trying to get a flu shot in Halifax, you may be having some trouble finding one. Doctors and pharmacists say demand is outpacing supply during the pandemic. (coughs) It's flu season. And this year, public health officials say the flu vaccine should be a higher priority for Nova Scotians. Dr. Robert Strang is the province's chief medical officer. Uh, it's important that, as, that, as, that we have as many Nova Scotians as possible uh, that get the flu vaccine this fall. We need to minimize the chance of both COVID and influenza spreading at the same time uh, and having a significant impact on our healthcare system. But some Nova Scotians have been having a hard time getting the vaccine over the last few weeks. Some pharmacies have run out of stock and at least a few vaccination clinics have closed. Diane Harpel is the chair of the Nova Scotia Pharmacy Association. Running out um, this early in the season is a little unusual. Um, So a lot of us are without flu vaccine right now and we have been told from public health that it's likely we won't get any more in pharmacies. In a statement, the province's Department of Health and Wellness says Nova Scotians should be patient and that there's not a shortage of vaccines this year. The department advises people to call around clinics and pharmacies until they find one with available shots. Harpel says some providers may have stock they're not using. What I'm hopeful for is that if there is still vaccine out there with other providers, so not in pharmacies, um, that if there's vaccine not being used, that the public health um, could possibly reach out to those providers to see if that vaccine could be reallocated to pharmacies so that those that still need to provide clinics and to provide flu doses to high-risk patients in particular might be able to get more stock that way. That's what the province is suggesting too. Its statement says the vaccine is of no use in storage. For people trying to avoid the flu this season, it's a matter of hunting it down. Thanks, Nathan. Did you get your flu shot this year? Yes, I did. How about you? Not yet. Hopefully that redistribution plan works out. Yeah. Meanwhile, the number of cyber attacks in Canada is on the rise. There have been three large-scale attacks just this month, one in the Maritimes, hitting St. John, New Brunswick. That is people in Halifax reviewing their online security. Alec Martin has a story. In response to the situation, our overall objective has been to contain the exposure, control our response... St. John Mayor Don Darling is not talking about the coronavirus. Instead, he's briefing reporters about Sunday's cyber attack. It saw the city's payment systems, emails, and website go dark. The crash was executed by cyber criminals looking to extort the city for payment in exchange for its files. The attackers used a type of virus called ransomware, which has become an essential tool for cyber criminals. Dr. Srini Sampali is a professor of computer science at Dalhousie University. He explains how this type of virus works. 
Once inside the machine, it looks at all your files in the machine and starts to encrypt them. And the only way to get your files back or unlock them or decrypt them is to get the secret key from the hacker. And in order to get the secret key, you have to pay a ransom. And that ransom is usually uh, demanded in terms of Bitcoin, which keeps the payee anonymous. Sampali says there are three main ways hackers get ransomware onto a device. A user clicks on a link containing the virus. The criminals find a vulnerability in the system. Or they take advantage of something as simple as a weak password. It's jarring for those living on the East Coast. Usually, attackers target larger cities like Toronto, Montreal, or Vancouver. Clara Needler speaks for the Halifax Regional Municipality. She says the city is being proactive to prevent security breaches. All municipal users are required to participate in a security awareness training program. Uh, This continuous training program is designed to inform staff of the steps to take to protect against uh, malicious cyber activity. Needler also says that staff at the municipality receive a briefing on ransomware as a part of the security awareness training. Dr. Sampali says the best way to stay ahead of cybercrime is to take precautions online and not let the criminals scare you. The more scared we are, that would be like incentivizing the hackers. We should not pay the ransom and then make sure that we deter them. So the more we deter them, the less the future attacks are going to be. Cyber attacks are never going to go away. It is something we have to live with, but we can learn to mitigate the attacks and I'm sure we can win the battle. His recommendations are simple. Keep secure passwords and change them often. Be sure applications and antivirus are up to date. Be cautious of links from unknown senders or websites you don't normally visit and back up everything. Meanwhile, St. John's files were backed up and the city is not paying a ransom. For The Signal, I'm Alec Martin. The Nova Scotia government recently announced another five years of funding for the Nova Scotia Film and Television Incentive Fund. The fund was created in 2015 to replace the Nova Scotia Film Industry Tax Credit. It was cancelled by the province, and people in the industry say that did massive damage to a vibrant industry. But now there's new optimism the replacement fund could win for the arts and film communities. Rose Murphy has been looking into this and joins us now. Hi Rose. Hi guys. What's the backstory on the NS Film and TV Incentive Fund? So in 2015, Stephen McNeil's Liberal government announced it was slashing the film industry tax credit that the Savage Liberals established in 1995. The local film industry and arts community banded together to fight the cut. A rally at the legislature in 2015 saw more than 2,000 people turn out to protest the government's decision and save the film industry. Ultimately, they were successful, although not everyone saw it that way. While the tax credit was eliminated, pressure from the community pushed the government to immediately replace it with a new film and television incentive program. Mark Allman was the head of Screen Nova Scotia at the time. Among other things, the organization spoke for the local film industry. He was heavily involved in the negotiations to establish and design the new program. I don't think people realize how much success we had with that incentive program because the immediate aftermath of what happened in 2015 was a major decline of business. But it's not because the incentive fund doesn't work. It's because Nova Scotia was seen as an unreliable place to do business. So, you know, the fact that we're able to turn around somebody as, as you know, renowned in terms of his rigidity and his, and his you know, iron spine 
somebody like Steve McNeil were able to turn that around and get them to put in place a new system is honestly an incredible achievement. How does this incentive program compare to the previous tax credit system? Allman says the new program is pretty comparable. While far from perfect, it's actually in some ways better than the tax credit. The tax credit program offered 50 to 65% tax credit on in-province labor costs. But that support was seen by many to be too generous. A poll by the Coast in 2015 about whether or not the tax credit should be cut saw some people asking why the government was subsidizing movie projects made by millionaires. In comparison, the incentive program that replaced it only offers a 25 to 30% grant or rebate, but it's applied to total project expenses, not just labor. And Allman says typically labor would be about 50% of most film budgets. What we were able to negotiate with the Nova Scotia government is that they would issue a total spend grant system that worked like a tax credit. And the total spend would be between 25 to 32% of the Nova Scotia, you know, expenditures. This is a really clever thing that we're able to achieve with the, with the government, in fact, because really it was the same thing as a 50 to 65% labor tax credit. The old tax credit system was also slow and clunky. The paperwork was onerous, requiring four or five separate audits, each potentially taking months. The new system requires fewer audits, although it's still carefully scrutinized. Once you've submitted your final expense reconciliation forms at the end of the production, you get a check or direct deposit in as little as six to eight weeks. Almond says there was a lot of concern over a proposed cap of 10 million on the funding pot. He says that could have been disastrous. It could be exhausted very quickly and would make the program unreliable as a source of funding and as an incentive to bring productions to the province. However, Allman says they were able to negotiate a sort of wink-wink, nudge-nudge, covert guarantee from the government that the pot would never run out. And much to the relief of the industry, so far, it never has. What's the impact of this being on the film industry over the last five years? Well, there's no doubt the cancellation of the tax credit did serious damage. Even though the new incentive fund came online immediately, word had already gotten out that Nova Scotia was not a reliable place to do film business. Hundreds of jobs were lost, talented professionals left the region to find work elsewhere, and the number of foreign productions coming to Nova Scotia plummeted. According to Crown Corporation Nova Scotia Business Inc., in 2016-2017, only 10.5 million in funding support was approved by the new program. In contrast, the former tax credit program had set aside 20 million in funding for 2015. Essentially, the industry was slashed in half overnight. Laura McKenzie is the current executive director of Screen Nova Scotia. The major issue is just the surprise of the change happening. Um, you know, when the government came in and they canceled the tax credit, they effectively canceled the industry. And so obviously, um, you know, that's going to, you know, have a, a pretty traumatic effect on the industry. Our understanding was employing about 2,500 to 2,700 people in Nova Scotia. And then we're talk talking about like sort of direct as well as indirect um, support. Yeah, so that's the equivalent of basically shutting down the Michelin factories in Nova Scotia in terms of the labor impact. You know, Michelin employs a little over 3,000 people. That's a big deal. <laughs> that's like, you know, losing 25 to 2,700 jobs. 
in a, in a, at a time when the, the province was really struggling. Mackenzie and Almond say it's taken years to rebuild the industry here and to get word out that Nova Scotia is a safe place to bring your film production again. And since the devastation of 2016, approved funding has more than doubled, with $26.4 million currently approved for film and television projects in 2020 and 2021. Also, in a strange way, COVID-19 could actually help the industry here recover. Our low infection numbers make this an increasingly attractive location for foreign productions again. What does all this mean for filmmakers? Shelley Thompson is a Halifax-based actor, writer, and director, best known for playing Barbara Leahy in the Trailer Park Boys. She's working on her first feature film as a director. It's called Dawn, Her Dad, and the Tractor, and was shot largely in and around Antigonish County. She says she couldn't make this film without the incentive fund. But she also thinks a lot more could and should be done by the government to support film and the arts in Nova Scotia. I'm very grateful that we have the incentive and I'm hugely grateful that it's going to be continued. But in the meantime, we lost other parts of those programs. We lost the um, equity program. In order for your project to be taken seriously, you need your first piece of equity. And the province used to provide that, but that's gone. And uh, so it's a, it's a steeper hill for filmmakers to climb now to find those first pieces of equity. Thompson says artists need to be taken seriously. People turn to works of art, music, film, television, for solace during times of emotional or physical stress, like the pandemic. And yet there still seems to be a disconnect, a lack of recognition that the artists are providing a service. So that gives us a sense of why provincial support is important for filmmakers. Why is the film industry important for the province? Well, to begin with, Mackenzie points out, there are the obvious economic benefits. Screen Nova Scotia estimates about 2,000 people are currently directly employed in television and film production in the province. And as Thompson says, production companies coming here to shoot movies drive the economy in other ways, often benefiting smaller rural communities that may otherwise be really struggling. What was so disappointing when it was decimated the last time was the fact that the government really did not seem to recognize what a driver, what an economic driver of communities the film industry could be. There's some big, big things happening that are driving parts of our economy right now when we need it driven. You know, the, the, I, I'm sure you know about Feudal that's been shooting on the South Shore, huge CBC production that was down there for from August the 10th until October 31st, you know, so, and that community has been buying their wood, buying their food, buying petrol, booking accommodation, you know, like that production has been driving that economy in a way, especially during COVID, that it couldn't have been driven. Almond points out that media is the fastest growing industry in the world, and we don't want to get left behind. And what's more, he says, we're really good at film and television production here. Going forward, Almond seems pretty optimistic. How are other film people feeling about the future? Mackenzie at Screen Nova Scotia says the continuation of the incentive fund is first and foremost in creating a healthy film industry. But that's not all we need. 
So, you know, on top of that, you know, we need a sound stage for productions to call home. We need to reinstate the equity fund and we need to continue to build, you know, on the, the crew and the performers that we have. You know, once we have an ecosystem that does all of that, then we'll really be moving towards our growth potential. And that's, you know, really the work that we're trying to do here. She's encouraged by the growing diversity in Nova Scotia and how she sees people are really trying to build inclusivity into the film and television community here. Mackenzie agrees and says that although she can't announce anything yet, she expects 2021 will be a very busy year for foreign productions coming to Nova Scotia. That's direct foreign investment. And, you know, of course, they're coming here for not just our locations, but also because we have world-class crew and world-class performers, and they want to take advantage of that. And that, she says, is something all Nova Scotians can be proud of. Rose Murphy is a student journalist here at the University of King's College. You're listening to The Signal, stories from the audio workshop at the University of King's College School of Journalism. I'm Antonia Whalen. And I'm Nathan Horn. Still to come on the show, more in our series on how to cope with pandemic stress. That's still ahead on The Signal. A Dartmouth woman has won an international award that recognizes social entrepreneurship. The Ashoka Fellowship honors people who champion new ideas that create positive changes in their communities. Jennifer DeCoste was granted the fellowship for starting the Life Schoolhouse. It's a network of hosts who offer people space in their homes as classrooms to share skills and knowledge with others. DeCoste started the school in 2018 in hopes of fostering a strong community to raise her children. But now the project has become much bigger. Leo Bui has that story. The idea is very simple. Jennifer DeCoste is standing in her living room. It doubles as a kind of school. People in our community are free to come and use our space here at the Folk School to come teach classes. And anyone can be a teacher. Anyone who has learned a skill like cooking or carpentry or basic electrical or leather bookbinding or um, any number of topics. The coast started the school in 2018. It works on the battery system. People don't pay to join these classes. Instead, they bring items or gifts to the instructors as a sign of respect and appreciation. It can be any number of things. The lists are quite broad, uh, but quite often it's things that are really easy to access. So things like house plants or soap that someone's made or um, Food items are really quite popular to exchange. Jessie Crabble teaches how to make sourdough pizza, sourdough crackers, and kimchi at the folk school. She finds the barter system very rewarding. What the bartering experience has reinforced is that everyone is going to bring what they have to offer. Uh, and you will get what you need. The surprise brings a lot of pleasure to it, and then just the, the feeling of generosity that we all have something to offer is, is what's really nice about the experience. Beside learning new skills, participants also find new connections and support in their community. That's especially important during the pandemic. It helps with the feelings of isolation and loneliness. We found that a lot of people in the community started taking care of each other because they knew that um, there were people that were feeling a little more isolated or that didn't have access to family or were lacking in different types of supports and resources. 
Since opening in 2018 in Dartmouth, the live schoolhouse model has been replicated in many communities across the province. You can find hosts in HRM, Clarence, Cohaber, East Hans, Digby County, and Colchester County. For The Signal, I'm Leo Bui. Tyler Messick and Virgil Mirror are known as the museum pieces. They're playing a free show this weekend in Halifax. Fun fact, Tyler was a student here at King's, long time ago. Let's have a listen. This is, I wish I was a fool for you. It seems like a lifetime since I saw you. I wish I was a fool for you. I 
the museum pieces with I Wish I Was a Fool for You. You can catch them live on Sunday at Bulwark Cider. That's at 7 o'clock. Don't forget your mask. Atlantic Canadians are looking for new ways to combat stress and anxiety related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Here's our regular feature on what people are doing to cope. Many more families are going to lose loved ones before that. It's understandable. You are stay in the blazes home through COVID-19. Today, there are no active cases in New Zealand. One way people are coping is by taking supplements said to aid in the relief of stress. Earlier this week, I visited a local health food store here in Newfoundland. Vitamins and minerals, sleep aids, and other herbal supplements. These are some of the items flying off the shelves at a local health food hotspot. The Natural Vibe is a health food store in St. John's, Newfoundland. Al Shaber is the manager of the shop. There's definitely a lot more people that are coming into the store that are saying that they're uh, going through a little bit more stress, a little more anxiety um, because of a number of different factors. Shaber says people have been asking for products for stress-related problems since the beginning of the pandemic. He says those include sleep aids or supplements geared towards alleviating anxiety. You know, some specific ingredients would be things like ashwagandha, holy basil, um, you know, for evening time use because a lot of people have trouble falling asleep. Things like valerian, chamomile, passionflower. Uh, so yeah, those are a few of the, uh, the products that we carry here. Mike Chong is a drug information pharmacist with Memorial University of Newfoundland. He says there are many vitamins and herbs used for anxiety and sleeplessness. There are over 3,000 health products in Canada that are labeled for treating stress, and these are ones that um, Health Canada has looked at a little bit. Um, and what that means is that there's a lot out there. Um, unfortunately, there's not a lot we know about those products. Chong says herbal treatments can cause interactions with other medications. He says people should check with their pharmacists before taking over-the-counter drugs or herbals. And he says that so far, there's no known studies on this particular way of treating COVID-19-related stress. Meanwhile, people are turning to the health food store in search of relief. And we have a really nice story to wrap up our show today. Halifax got a professional lacrosse team last year. Now COVID-19 has put their play on hold. But the Halifax Thunderbirds are using a longer-than-usual off-season to give back to their community. They've announced a new program to increase cultural diversity and inclusion in the game. Sarah Moore has more. Lacrosse is a very Canadian game, but it hasn't always been accessible to all Canadians. Brett Draper's family is from the Black community of North Preston. He grew up in Dartmouth and started playing lacrosse when he was 10. He says there weren't many people of colour playing back then. He was glad to be one of them. It's got me through a lot in my life. I kind of relied on it when I... Uh... When I needed it, I was going through hard times and stuff, and um, it's always there. It's not going anywhere, so... Then, two months ago, a dream come true. Draper was drafted by the Halifax Thunderbirds. A year ago, the team was practicing for the start of its first professional lacrosse season. But things at the Scotiabank Centre, or the Nest, as it's known to the team and its fans, are a little different now. A little quieter, thanks to COVID-19. The National Lacrosse League won't have games until next April, 
Still, Draper and the Thunderbirds are keeping busy, outside of the box. They're partnering with groups from the Black and Indigenous communities, and one that focuses on female players. The Indigenous Players Lacrosse Association, Turtle Island Lacrosse, the Black Lacrosse Alliance, and the Nova Scotia Sirens Female Lacrosse Program. This inclusion and empowerment program aims to increase diversity and grow lacrosse in Nova Scotia. Chet Konezki plays for the team. He's running this program, the first of its kind in the National Lacrosse League. A key component is developing leadership already in the community. And, you know, we're trying to build relationships with those people and ultimately just ask, you know, how can lacrosse be a vehicle of success for your community? The partners will be holding monthly Zoom calls to talk about supporting lacrosse in marginalized communities. The more we can bring the people together and, and have these meaningful conversations, um, you know, that's that to me is where the change starts. Another part of the program, try lacrosse sessions, free workshops for kids. This tool could be, you know, such a positive thing in some of these marginalized communities that aren't getting exposed to the game. The first session is being held in North Preston later this month. It's for six to eight year olds and nine to 14 year olds. Draper and other players from the Thunderbirds will be there to introduce the sport. He's excited to be able to bring that experience to more people, especially starting in North Preston, where he has family and friends. When I was growing up, I didn't really have anyone kind of doing this for me. I just want to be able to be there and do what I can to give back. The Thunderbirds want to bring lacrosse to other black communities too, like East Preston and Cherrybrook. Eventually, they want to establish intramurals and minor lacrosse leagues. For The Signal, I'm Sarah Moore. That's our show for today. We'll be back with more next week. If there's anything you want to hear again, we'll be posting a link on our social media feeds. Our handle is SignalFXHRKIF. <clears throat> if there's anything you want to hear again, we'll be posting a link on our social media feeds. Our handle is SignalHFX on Twitter and Instagram. A shout out to our technician, Mark Pinio, in the control room. Our audio professor is Pauline Dakin. I'm Nathan Horn. And I'm Antonia Whalen. Have a great weekend. Thank you.